So let's see how many of these, these, what, sayings, these words you can recognize. And be honest, okay? I'm going to ask you at the end. That was a gas. Bummer. You got any bread? Bug out. Burn rubber. Chick. Cool pipes, man. Don't flip your wig. Drag. Kiss up. Flower child. Hacked off. Lay it on me. Loaded. Love bite. I really want to know who knows that one. Pedal pushers. Okay, honestly. The first one, gas, tons of fun, bummer, depressing, bread, money, bug out, leave me alone, burn rubber, make tires squeer, chick, girl, cool pipes, mellow sounding, don't flip your wig, don't go ape, or <laughs> don't lose your cool, drag, dull or boring, kiss up, teacher's pet, flower child, hippie. Hacked off, really mad, lay it on me, speak your peace, loaded, drunk, love, bite. That's a hickey. You know what a hickey is? That's, that's, that's when you give someone a bruise by kissing them too hard on the neck. And on it goes. Okay, how many of you honestly knew all of them? You Like that, you knew them all. Raise your hand really high. How many of you knew most of them? Raise your hand really high. How many didn't know most of them? Raise your hand high. Be honest. All right, a couple of you. I don't think y'all, this is an old crowd. I can't wait till the next service. I just realized we don't have any high school kids in there. <laughs> All our youth are gone. All right, so you're probably, know, maybe you won't know most of these then. I don't know. Let's try it again. Jomo, FOMO, sorry, not sorry. Dipset, I'm V, JK, I'm P, TBH, IDK, LOL. How many of you knew all of them? See, we're in the wrong congregation today. <laughs> we got another congregation in the second service. I guarantee you they're going to know them. All right. Well, let me tell you what those are, just so you know. Jomo, joy of missing out. Pomo, fear, FOMO, fear of missing out. Sorry, not sorry, don't apologize. Dipset, leave because it's boring. I'm V, that is, I'm very excited. JK, just kidding. I'm P, pretty excited, not very excited. JPH, to be honest, IDK, I don't know, LOL, laugh out loud. All right, so what am I trying to say here? Well, we're obviously not going to get the fullness of this message today because half of us are gone. That is we, what we call the Gen Y or whatever you want to call the younger generation. And many of us at least are familiar with the older generation, but even here I can look out and see there's some older and there's some middle-aged people in here, all right? Let's put it that way. Maybe some younger, too. Well, I'm obviously addressing this issue of a generation gap. And, of course, uh, and it's nothing uncommon in history. It's been around since the beginning of time. And even our passage today, you'll see, is addressing that very topic. The generation gap. What is that exactly? It's, again, not uncommon, but it's the gap. Uh, the cultural gap, the value gap, 
the perspective gap that exists between really every generation. And of course, you can pick it up most with slime. It's funny how I hear sometimes the older generation, you know, complaining about the younger, and I hear younger generations complaining about the older, and, and if you listen to those complaints, it's, it's quite interesting because um, there are all kinds of deeply held values that are emerging about worship, about life, about planning. I mean, it's incredible when you stop to listen. And the tendency is for, especially if you're in a Christian worldview, it's to spiritualize your culture. It's to spiritualize it. The tendency, quite frankly, is that in this multi-generational context, it becomes evident that generations, whether boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Y, can, all of these can have very different interests and expectations specific to their own generation and in ways that can create all kinds of relational fiction and family and workplace place disorder. Enter then the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 5, the eternal word of God, a perspective that transcends all generations. And what would we learn? How does the Christian worldview engage our generation gaps? How might we discern uh, the gift of generations in regard to our gospel journey? That's some of the things that I hope that we can talk about today in this sermon, but let's, let's begin in prayer. So Father, we do thank you for just the gift of your eternal word. We thank you, Lord, how the gospel transforms our expectations and perspectives. And we pray, therefore, that Christ would be here to bring the gospel to bear upon how we treat one another, especially across the, the generation gap. And we pray, Lord, that you would be exalted and that your people would flourish because of this conversation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to the, uh, you can turn this up just a tad. I can feel myself screaming to try to get back there. Um, uh, I mentioned to this session, just while we were praying, you know, there's all kinds of sermons I just probably would never think to preach. It's so good that we are committed, by the way, to expositional preaching because literally I can think of just hundreds and hundreds of sermons I might not have ever preached. Well, I turned the page in 1 Timothy, the book that I'm working through, as you know, and, um, and I thought, oh, I don't want to preach this. I'm just not in the mood to talk about this, you know. And, but it did force me to, to kind of say, okay, let me try to look at this with a little fresh perspective. And lo and behold, uh, something began to be noticed that I hadn't really noticed. This may be one of the few passages in the scripture that actually exhorts both generations in the way that they treat each other. In other words, it's interesting how, how uh, we are told here, it's not the only, I think Ephesians does it and some others, but, but it's, it's interesting how, how there is that cross-generation focus. Of course, this passage is clearly um, uh, related in two parts. First part is how the older should treat the younger, and then the second is how the younger should treat the older. And secondly, it's clearly um, reflecting on the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment in Exodus, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
This is reaffirmed all through Scripture in various places through Scripture. Deuteronomy 5, same thing is said a little differently, that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. It's reaffirmed again in the New Testament, such as Ephesians chapter 6, and of course this passage as well and some others. And so we have this context of the fifth commandment, and we have this context of a generation gap that was as true for Paul's day as it is today. And the question is then, what does the gospel say about that generation gap? I mean, you, you will notice especially this language of like father, mother, as related to how youth treat elders, and like a brother or sister the way that elders treat youth. And those are instructive, especially in the context you know, what is meant by the father and the mother, for instance? Well, clearly it's, 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 it references the family system, if you will, uh, a dad and a mom. But also we find throughout redemptive history that it is a, it is a moniker, it's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of all those who are older and, and or have jurisdictional authority over your life. Um, it's why there's this promise attached to it. Hey, you know, you, you want to get along with these folks because they do have a lot to give or to take away from you. And so you see that kind of thing. But what's very interesting then is the second part is going to talk about brothers and sisters. That's a little bit surprising. And then you have to go back in redemptive history and begin to see, now what is he saying there? What is it? How is it that you treat a brother and a sister? And I think that's often gotten lost in a sermon on the fifth commandment because they're reciprocal duties of the older to the younger, even as there's duties to the younger to the older. Somehow, perhaps in a older-dominated context, we just don't remember that second part. What does it mean to treat the younger as a brother? Not as a child, but as a brother and a sister. Very interesting. That surprised me. Does it surprise you? And so with that in mind, um, I want us to move forward here and particularly just understand how these two parts go. It's, it's not going to take a lot of time because, again, it's pretty short, but I think it's going to be profound. The first uh, relationship here is, uh, of course, the young to the old. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And then, likewise, older woman as a mother. Rebuke. That word could be in translated, I think, uh, a little better. Maybe reproach or uh, to denounce, uh, to disapprove. It, it's a pretty long word. It's a, I mean, a, a, it's a pretty uh, strong word. Um, it's a word that, that it often is, is uh, taking the form of a superior to an inferior. Now, I don't mean that in terms of identity. That's not what we're talking about. Everybody's made equal in the image of God. Um, what I mean is in position, you know, a, uh, a position wherein uh, there is an authority base going on. And so it's interesting about this word is, is how it's, saying, it's acknowledging that, that clearly it would be inappropriate to take the posture of superiority, if you will, or of, of kind of, of disrespect for those who are older. And, this, and, it's, and, and you're going to see this is older and younger, even as they are related to father 
mother and brother and sister. Uh, the word is not, you know, elder per se, it's older. And so in that case, it's, it's important to understand that, that there is a relationship between generations at view here, and you're not to be, if a younger treating an older, in a posture of rebellion maybe, or in a posture of disrespect, I think it's pretty clear. Rather, he uses this word to encourage. Now, that could mean uh, respectfully in, encourage as in exhort, as in to challenge maybe, in a soft wet use of that word. Um, it also, of course, can mean encouragement. Um, that is to encourage you, uh, to build you up in a matter. Um, and so it's, it's important to know, though, there is... Um, well, how do I put it? There's talking back going on here, <laughs> but not quite maybe in the way we think of it. There is the, the posture of the youth to be able to speak into the life of an older person. That's often gotten lost too, hasn't it? It's not just be quiet. Don't say anything. Now, we got to be careful, you know, and all this kind of stuff, but, but, but it's definitely a place uh, for encouragement to to encourage, console, uh, perhaps even uh, exhort to a degree, but it's done in a very respectful way. Um, done with piety, if you will, with humility. Um, if you look at how the church over the centuries have tried to interpret this, um, I can quote here from our own confession of faith, and, and it says, what does God require then in this fifth commandment, in this first part we're talking about? that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my elders, you could say, my older, the older people in my life, yes, father and mother, and to all in authority over me, submitting myself with due obedience to all their good instructions. Notice that, a discernment of good instructions. Now, that's interesting. Um, now, we have to talk through that, right? Um, and correction, and also bear patiently with their infirmities, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Again, speaking of the jurisdictional or influential aspect of elder people in our lives. What is the honor that, in, um, and then it goes on. We could, we'll talk some more. Um, so, so with that in mind, um, what does this mean? What do we hear in here? It's a pretty simple verse, pretty straightforward. But I think you could all agree that there's a, there's a sense of, of respect, a sense of def deference that we would, uh, we, in a way that we would honor someone who is aged. It's interesting how, how much uh, the scripture speaks about this, and particularly in the wisdom. You know, it's not just a, a law, a moral law in the Bible. It's especially in this passage, notice it's, it's, it's uh, completed with a promise uh, that, that life will go well with you. It's the only commandment in the scripture that has a promise like that of the Ten Commandments, explicitly stated. Life will go well with you. And the wisdom particularly picks that up. Now, wisdom, say, I love the wisdom. What's wisdom? Because in the scripture, the wisdom, well, instead of saying that's wrong, the wisdom more or less says, that's just downright stupid. And so, you want to be stupid? All right, go at it. Disrespect your elder kind of thing. Why? Because life's just not going to go well with you. It just won't. It's just stupid. <laughs> and listen to some of the ways it says it. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. 
Now notice, by the way, how father and mother are used interchangeably right there. They're used as synonymous. That's important too for a whole host of things, but this isn't a sermon on gender. Um, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despo- uh, despises his mother. What is he saying? You know, if you're in a good relationship with someone who is your authority or someone who is your older person who has uh, an impactful relationship with you or could that's influential in a positive way in your life, uh, you'd want them to be glad. You'd want them to be happy in their relationship with you. It's it's worth, you know, uh, well, I won't say that, but it's, it's, it's worth getting along with our older people in our life because good things can happen. It goes on. Let me just read a few. We heard it. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. He will be blind. He will be without something that God had intended for him or her. His lamp will go out. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Ouch. It's kind of intense, but I think it's making a point. It's just downright dumb, you know, to not have a good relationship with older people in your life. That's the point. Now, let's look at the second one, the relation of old to young. As a brother or sister, what is he talking about there? Notice how often this language, to to understand here, what does it mean then to treat younger people than us as a brother or sister? Well, if you look at the way that language is used, even in the Old and in the New Testament, you discover that there's a relationship there of of mutual respect, but most especially the emphasis is upon love and grace, and patience. And so listen to the way it says it, for instance. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay, what's a brother here? It's the opposite of enemy. It's someone who's not, don't treat a younger person adversarially, as to exasperate them. Treat them as your friend. And there's a whole posture, you see. It's not a competitive relationship. It's not a a uh, oppressive relationship. That's what's going on here. First John, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The way we treat younger people in our lives is the way we treat God. Akin to something like, you know, the the least of these, my brothers, he called them. Remember that? The least of these, my brothers. What does that mean? Those are people who are made the image of God, of course, but more than that, they are people who we see in an endearing way, in a way that would then discount all kinds of behaviors in the way that we would treat them. I could read on. 1 John 2, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Or James, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Now, that's a good one. Come on now, boomers. Tell me you haven't grumbled a bit. 
about the millennials. And millennials, of course, it goes back too that way as well. But this grumbling because we're brothers, we're sisters. We don't have the disdain. There's, no dis- there's not to be any disdain for each generation. There's a real reparation going on here, isn't there? A kind of clarifying a false way of relating to the generation gaps. One that would treat one another with disdain rather than affection. One that would not appreciate each other. There is a role, as we just saw, for the younger to exhort, to teach even, if you will, the older. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So for instance, in a number of of language, this idea is expressed uh, to have a clean heart. What does it mean here in purity? Did you hear that? That you're to, to treat the younger person in, with purity. Some translations said chastity. It's not a very good translation, actually, of this word. It's more purity. And there's been a lot of discussion. What exactly is going on with that? What, 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 what does it mean by purity? It means that your intentions are pure. That is pure in their love for this person. So, for instance, what does it mean for an older person and how they treat a younger person? Well, it would mean, of course, certain things like whatever powers they have, they would use them graciously, they would use them gently, they would use them in a manner that is affection driven rather than disgust driven, let's say. it's to instruct, counsel, admonish, countenancing, commending, rewarding. Yes, perhaps reproving, but protecting them. It's, it's to see yourself in a role where, where you honestly uh, understand that you have an influence. And your influence is power. And power, of course, can be abused. So, for instance, when our confession talks about the sins of the older to the younger, the sins of these are neglecting of our duties uh, that, that we have towards them, say if you're a parent, to neglect your children, um, or an elder, or even just an older person who understands God's put you to, uh, this person in your life for a reason. It's to, uh, it's to treat them in a way that would seek your own glory, your own ease, your own profit, your own pleasure. In other words, to be selfish versus loving. It's to discourage them. Um, it's to uh, decountenance them, which is to put them down, to make them feel small, to make them feel weak, to make them feel foolish. These are amazing statements when you stop to think about how generations tend to treat each other, isn't it? You know, it's interesting how um, one of the things I think that, that people who have power don't recognize is that they have power. To be honest, most of us, perhaps, like me, have a low self-esteem of ourselves. And we're now trying to prove ourselves to the world. We're trying to, to look good, to best ourselves, whatever. And I think especially as we get older, we can be tempted to do that. And in doing that, what would we start to do? In a very subtle way, we're, and maybe not so subtle, we won't be gentle because we're intimidated by the youth. 
We're intimidated by what they know. Their quick brains, their, their high energy, their tech savvy, whatever it is. And very subtly, our insecurities can be a driver of many of these attributes. Likewise, I could say that about the young to the older. It usually, if you stop to think about how it is that we treat each other, underneath both sides, there's probably some insecurity. An insecurity that wants me now to have to prove myself, to, if you're young, to sort of rebuke, revolt, to, to uh, rebel, to find myself, if you will, against an older person. If you're an older person the same way, to prove yourself as the better, the smarter, the wiser. And often underneath it is insecurity. And I look at these words, and these are definitely languages uh, that, um, that result from, I think, insecurity. Which is why I want to now make the transition. This has been pretty simple, pretty short exposition. You don't mind that, right? But now let's take it home. We just had a segue, and I want to really stop and, and slow down here a little bit. So how does this Christian worldview, how does this passage fit into the gospel? Because that's what this book is all about, of course. How does it engage the issue of generation gaps, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ? How might we discern the gift of generations, I asked earlier, in regard to our gospel journey together within the church? And given all of our temptation to cozy up to our own generational idolatries, how might we discern the generation gap as God's gift to us for the sake of being set free from our own idols of destruction? Let me just slow down for a little bit. There's a proverb, and now I speak to most of us who are older to hear this proverbs, but it could go backwards the other way. But just consider the youth, Proverbs 119. Your commandment, he's talking about those who are young. Your commandment relate, makes me wiser than my enemies, says the Proverbs, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than, than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. This enters into the conversation a fairly interesting observation. The fact of the matter is that both ages are under inferior in a, in a relationship to God. Both ages are in a relationship to God as our father, mother, if you will, our older person in our life. And to know him and to be reconciled to him is to be reconciled to a wisdom and a knowledge that transcends the wisdom and knowledge of even the humanly aged. Why? Because we're talking about God, eternal, infinite in being, his word, his scripture. I remember I read that a long time ago. I remember it was right uh, around the time I became a Christian and and much of my Christianity came out of some brokenness in and, and my family life. And I remember uh, a time when, and I loved my mom and dad, and they were good in many ways, so don't, don't go too far with all that. But, but, um, <clears throat> but, but there was a broken family, divorce. Uh, there was alcoholism in our family. And, 
some other things. And I remember at the age of 12, before I became a Christian, walking up to the 7-Eleven. Do we even have those? That's one of those things. Um, and um, I used to walk up there to buy candy, you know. And, uh, and I would just remember talking to God, you know, even, you know, in the way that I could, and just saying, God, I, I'm going to, I want you to show me how to live my life. I just was broken in my own context, and, and I remember thinking, God, show me how to make, and particularly, it was this kind of, I don't want to do it the way my parents did it. Now, I would say, and I hope, that every young man or woman will say that at some point. You know, I encourage my kids to. You know, I haven't fixed everything in my life yet. I hope that you will learn from my mistakes. I hope you will do it better. Every parent, isn't that their ambition to, to, to kind of pick up where we've left off from our journey from our parents, and we want to pass our journey on, and we want to pass on the good stuff, but we hope that they don't take the bad stuff, right? That's what we all pray as parents. And I remember making that prayer, you know, to my mind. It was later that I came upon this passage, and it meant so much to me as a young man. It just meant so much. And even then, before I was a Christian, I then started reading my Bible because of this passage. It was like I just would, I would stay up at night and read. I wasn't a Christian, but I was just hungry because I wanted life. I wanted, I wanted to live. I wanted to flourish, and I didn't like the life that I was in at that point. It was that simple. And um, this is a powerful concept when we think about the Word of God, when we think of God having access to our children, to our youth, to young men, young women, and aged. All the generations, four or five, that we have in this church right now. And to think that the word of God is what we all share in common. And it's over all of us. Now I say that because, well, there's, we've got to acknowledge that, that whether it's our Western values, whether it's our generation values, whether it's our you know, gender values, whether it's our political values, Whatever they are, these values, we tend uh, to spiritualize them. We want them to be, we want to believe in these things, and we will often, and you can find scripture that will kind of spiritualize it, back it up. But one of the things we talk about here in the church a lot, especially in leadership, is learning to distinguish between elements and forms. The, uh, the, those who wrote our Confession of Faith 350 years ago uh, were deeply concerned for what they called form worship. In other words, maybe a good value, but, but then, but then um, confusing that value with the form that it takes in a person's life, how they actually do it. And of course, every generation has its, quote, pig Latin. Now, that was one. How many of you know what pig Latin is? All right, how many don't? That would be a generation thing. See, this is an older congregation. Yeah, we're not being honest. But yeah, pig Latin, and you think, for instance, oh, I hear it now with the older folks. You know, these folks, the, our kids, they're just addicted to their phones, and, you know, and there's critique about how the phones are addictive, and there are a lot of problems with phones. And it's not just for youth, by the way. Um, but, 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 uh, but I, we hear that thing, and this is kind of an example of what I mean, just to try to illustrate. And so, you know, often, though, what I hear is a, a kind of resistance and a, and a kind of, um, well, you know, disdain for all the, 
the anachronisms and the way our kids are talking in, in this kind of language that's code language, you know, with the IDKs and the LOLs and the FOMOs and the, you know, all that. And, um, and then, and the, but it dawned upon me that we did the same thing when I was a kid. It's called Pig Latin. Creating language that we could talk uh, to each other while an adult's in the room and they would have no clue what we were talking about. And today, it just takes a different form. Same thing. You take a phone, you're in the middle of a room with adults, but you're having a private conversation. No one knows that you're right there in the middle of a crowd, but it's totally private with 10 friends in your life through texting or Instagramming or whatever media you use. Isn't that funny? A form of nothing different than what we did through Pig Latin. And every generation develops its own slang. And the mistake would be, now it's not that I want you know, to speak Pig Latin uh, or for my kids to do texting uh, when we're in the middle of a conversation or you or anybody else to do it for that matter. Um, but it's, it's the way in which we'll have disdain for something and be blind to our own va cultural value. Um, let me go a little further. Think about just what it means uh, to live in, uh, in a kind of syncretistic way with our culture. What do we start to do? We become blind. You know, we were laughing the other day in, in our session meeting, um, you know, that you, you, you can't ask a frog to, to tell you what water is. You know, or a fish, what's water? Well, they don't know what water is because they've never been able to get outside of water to look at water. That's the, the cultural blindness that we all have sitting in this room. If you're a boomer, most likely there are many idols in your life. If you're a Gen Yer or Gen Xer or Gen, you know, millennial or whatever, um, there's going to be values that you have that probably oozed into your culture by virtue of living in a, if you're in America, a Western culture, let's say. And a Western culture has values that's called Western values, which are probably influenced by the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was influenced by, and see, here we go. We as people who want God's word can transcend all of this if we'll let God do it in our lives. And so let me just try to think about what some values would be that, that could be challenged. The, the point I'm trying to make here is that, that we need generations in our lives. And it's interesting how much emphasis the scripture puts on multi-generational discipleship, multi-generational worship. Our tendency is to want to separate kids from our worship or adults from their worship. We want to separate and have this group and that group and this group and that group. And there's a place to do some of that. Don't get me wrong. What we call niche ministry or something. But the danger is to forget how much we need each other and how much we need to talk to each other and to learn from each other because we're all subject to our idolatries. So just for instance, think about worship for a minute. What preference do you have for worship? Do you like it to be scripted? You know, more in an ordered fashion? Or do you like it to be more free spirit? Less scripted. More repetitive in the music? Singing a verse over and over and over again? Letting the emotion rise and, and, and gain as you sing it? Or would you rather sing it less repetitive? 
Does the repetition in some of our songs drive you crazy? And of course, you can probably determine which generation you are by the way you answer this question. More emotional or less emotional, more cerebral? More, quote, reverent. Now see what I just did? Spiritualized. Versus more upbeat. Now, underneath every one of those, there are idols, perhaps. You know, in the scripture, it's amazing how it'll say to most of this stuff, both and. And yet one generation seems to only see one side. I mean, there's a lot of scripture, if you're on the more scripted side, that, that, that shows you a more free-spirited side of worship. Just read the Psalms. and Noisy clanging is going on in their worship. And vice versa. Maybe it's your training and your background. Some of you maybe, and this is, goes across things, maybe some of you, your music and you were raised with a certain kind of music and a certain kind of musical training. And therefore you have a preference for that kind of training and music that you grew up with on either side of the, of the aisle, if you will. What about values? You know, you hear a lot in the literature how the older tend to be more focused on acquiring things. Materialism, workaholism. The younger tend to be more focused on acquiring experiences. The idols could be hedonism, squandering time in the eyes of the older generation. That's a waste of time. You know, why aren't you learning something? Why aren't you doing something to build something? Why are you, I don't know, snow skiing all the time? Or having experience, you know, I, I think in a counseling situation I had once where one partner just really had a more what we used to call whole language approach. The other had a much more scripted and, and you know, focused approach in terms of a learning schedule and all of that. And one would, you know, stop at the, like that and with their kids and, and observe, uh, you know, an ant. And might spend an hour looking at the ant with this kid and drawing all kinds of lessons from it, but there was a big focus on that. The other is, why aren't you doing your homework? And why is this person not going through this curriculum before the end of the day? Some of you probably can see that in your own relationship with your, your spouse, if, if you have children as well. And how easily that becomes of uh, what we would call an element of our spirituality versus a form. Experts speak of the generation gap and the differing perspectives of older and younger groups as a major obstacle to intergenerational relationships, but also to human flourishing. Have you thought about that? And so here's, here's the bottom line. Be careful from this passage. Be warned that to have tension between generations is not to have access to the fullness of God's wisdom in your life. To, to, to prejudge another generation is not wise. It's dumb. Because that generation might be the very generation God put in your life to expose to you idols, things that you give power to in order to find human flourishing that will actually take it away. Uh, there's some pushback right now in the workforce about life, work-life balance coming from the younger generation. 
Maybe that's a good thing. And if you're a younger generation, there's some pushback from the older generation about, about the, the value of, of work and building you know, stuff, if you will, house. But there's some pushback in the younger generation about why is the house so important? And we look at that as, in the older generation, say, well, that's dumb. You gotta live somewhere. We hadn't listened. You see, we're just crossing paths. And so, this is a sermon that I think uh, takes me by surprise. That the gospel is so much bigger and more powerful than the culture wars that are generational in nature. And for us to be encouraged by this passage, to really think about that, to have real conversations with each other across generations. If you aren't, if you're in a bubble of your own generation and almost all the socialization and discipleship that's going on in your life is in just your generation, I want to challenge you to cross over, to, to try to find somebody in this congregation and say, I'd love to just sit down and talk and hear, you know, it, it can sound corny, you know, find a way to do it, you know, naturally maybe, but, but to really listen, why do you have that value? Why do you think that's better? Now, I'm convinced the only way we can transgress this problem is through the gospel. Because what does the gospel do? It sets us free from the fear of condemnation. It sets us free from having to prove myself. It sets me free from my insecurity and fear. And when we're set free from those things, because we know God accepts us, uh, it sets us free now, and it restores us to God's, what we call law. Because before I was saved, the law condemned me. After I'm saved, the law now instructs me. And we just heard the law of God today. We've heard from God's law uh, what it is to be wise in our generation relationships. And we should take that and pursue relationships. And why that with my children, for instance, if you're a parent, you have a relationship. But what would it mean to sit down and, and to have a real conversation to hear their perspective if you're a parent? You're a child. I know, you know, this person, you're, 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 you have some level of fear for your parent because they have so much authority in your life and power. But to listen to them and see what really they're worried about for you and why that might be something worth listening to. Well, that's it. It's that simple. It's one of those kind of sermons where I think that we just need to go do it. So let's pray.